What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to the Thursday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Perhaps you are a Methodist, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, and you've got questions about the Catholic faith, but you're not quite sure where to get those answers. Well, why not from a Catholic reliable source like us? Here's our phone number, 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, perhaps in, um, oh, I don't know, Zanzibar, well, here's a phone number just for you, 1-205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you have a question that you would like to pose via YouTube or Facebook, well, by golly, we're streaming there right now, both platforms. You can put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and uh, we're off to the races. Hopefully, we can answer your question on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question that just came in this morning, and this is from Lucia, who says, I think of Old Testament sacrifices, and none of the animals had to suffer before they were killed. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Why was it not enough that the Son of God, the perfect Lamb, innocent and sinless, was sacrificed for our sins? I don't resist this teaching, I would just like to hear Dr. Zander, Dr. Anders' thoughts on this. Thanks, Lucia. Yeah, thanks. So we can give a number of answers to this question. One of them is uh, found in, in, uh, in the book of 1 Peter. When Peter writes about the death of Christ, he says that Christ died to leave us an example that we should follow. Mm. So the atonement of the death of Christ does a lot of things. One of them is to set an example for us. Christ himself said, if you want to be my disciples, you have to take up your cross and follow me, live the way I lived. Yeah. And so, so Christ's fortitude in the face of suffering is a profound example of the virtue of uh, supernatural fortitude that we're called to have in our pursuit of, uh, of, of the good and the righteous and in resistance to evil and, and even, even perhaps if it costs us our own life or a tremendous inconvenience or pain. So if Christ hadn't suffered, he wouldn't have set for us an example of fortitude. Um, Christ also, give, Christ's death, his passion on the cross, sets for us a profound example of humility. And this is something that St. Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, when he says that though being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself uh, lowly like a servant and was obedient to death, even to death on a cross. So uh, though he was the exalted Son of God from all eternity, uh, and his uh, his detractors mocked him and said he called himself the Son of God and Messiah. Let him come down off the cross, see what an ignominious death he dies, and ha, 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 isn't that great? Um, and he submitted himself to that kind of humiliation. And, of course, the cross was a great humiliation, um, again, to set for us an example of, uh, of, of humility. 
um, his, uh, in both of these acts, his, his willingness to undergo great personal suffering and humiliation were deeply meritorious actions. And so this is part and parcel of the way in which he merited for us the grace of redemption and eternal life. Now, obviously, God could have redeemed us in some other way. So you can take any particular aspect of the death of Christ and say, is this absolutely metaphysically necessary? And the answer to the question is no, uh, but it was fitting that the Son of God save us in this manner. Okay. And uh, Lucia, thank you so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Paul who says, I'm asking for my non-believing son. I want to give him a resource to help answer his questions. He was raised Catholic. He believes in a higher being, but he doesn't know if it's Christian or something else. Do you have any websites or Q&A that you could recommend? That's from Paul. Um, yeah, Paul. So the the... The discipline of Catholic theology that answers the question why the Catholic faith is is called apologetics. And one of the things that it does is articulate what are called the motives of credibility. And so a a good place to start is to read up in Catholic theology on the so-called motives of credibility. Uh, One place you might go to is the lectures of, of Professor Lawrence Feingold on that very subject, uh-huh. Um, he, uh, Dr. Feingold is a professor of theology at Kenrick Theological Seminary who has a kind of uh, uh, comprehensive catechesis on, the, on, on sort of the whole scope of Catholic theology. You can find his lectures online. They're very good. He has lectures on the motives of credibility. You can find a lot of stuff at calledtocommunion.com. Um, and, uh, 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 you know, personally, I am drawn to arguments for Catholicism from the effect that the Catholic Church has had on world civilization. That, that's particularly compelling to me. Um, and some interesting books that you might consider in that genre would be Tom Wood's book, uh, The Catholic Church Built Western Civilization, or Tom Holland's book, Dominion. Okay. Appreciate that. Thank you so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Dan. Uh, and I'm not familiar with this one. I've, I've heard a few. Uh, can I use the analogy of a light bulb to describe the Trinity? You ever heard of that? Uh, I've heard of the four-leaf clover. Yeah, or, uh, or, yeah so I think I've heard that, or I've heard analogous, uh, analogous analogies. Um, the answer to the question is no. I mean, I mean, I suppose you can. You can do anything you want to do, but it would be a bad <laughs> analogy. It would be a bad analogy. Um, if the, the light bulb analogy probably is something like this. You have... Um, um, you know, you have the, the, the source of the light that is the light bulb, and then you have the, 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 right, the light beams that come out of the source of the light or, or something like that. I don't uh-huh. know. And uh, what, what all of these physical analogies to the Trinity lack um, is well, they, they lack, well, the doctrine of the Trinity, they lack either on the unity side or they lack on the relational side, right? Mm. And so... Um, almost all physical analogies of the Trinity stress either unity or 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 um, or relation, but they don't get them both, mm. right? And that's because there is no physical object, there's no physical reality that has the character of the Blessed Trinity. So the the only analogy that I think comes close is one that's not drawn from the physical world, but drawn from the intentional world of the human intellect. Uh-huh. And here comes the music. Maybe I can detail that for you after the break. Sure. And you know what? As soon as I said four-leaf clover, I thought, well, that's not right. I meant to say shamrock. Quaternity! Sh- shamrock. <laughs> that's where I meant to go. Anyway, we'll continue with that in just a moment here. We'll also talk with Lucas in Jackson, Michigan. Lines are open for you right now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. 
It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on this Thursday afternoon. Glad to be with you on EWTN Radio as we're working our way through Advent. And by by the way, before we continue, let me put in a little a, a little plug for some of the wonderful EWTN radio programming that you'll hear, not only on radio on television, of course, uh, but uh, radio is is my very close to my heart. And and if I could uh, mention this, if you go to EWTN.com/radio. And then go to the schedule page. You can find out about all the great Advent programming we're going to be bringing you over the weekend, in the coming week, and then, of course, the 48 hours of Christmas, all day Christmas Eve day, all day Christmas day. So do check it out by going to EWTN.com radio. Before we get to the phones here, we're going to continue that question we started with Dan. Can I use the analogy of a light bulb to describe the Trinity? Um, yeah, thank you. So I, I don't think it's a great analogy. And the, the, the when people have used the light bulb analogy, what they normally mean is that you have the source of the light, you have the beam of the light, and then you have the illuminated patch that you shine the light on. Okay. And the argument would be, well, they're all three, but they have some kind of tripartite division. And the reason I don't like the analogy is because um, there it relies upon uh, s- spatial <laughs> extension. To, for the differentiation, because the source of the light and the illumination against the wall and the beam in, in, in between are distinguished from one another by their by their spatial location, right? Okay. Among other among other ways, and that's definitely not the way the Blessed Trinity relates to one another. So, Father and Son within the Trinity are not distinguished in space. They, they don't. There's you know there's not there's not thirty feet between them. That's not <laughs> the way that they're related. And so I think it I think it distorts, and I think it would. It would, it would, like all analogies, it breaks down, and it would tend, perhaps, to the to the era of tritheism. I'm not sure, but mm. it, it would clearly in, in involve a kind of mental confusion about what the doctrine actually teaches. I think a better analogy for the Trinity, the only one that I really like, actually, uh-huh. is St. Augustine's analogy, which is drawn from the human intellect. And uh, so take for granted Augustine's understanding of the intellect as a as an immaterial substance. Okay. Right? Just take that for granted, and you have to work within that framework. You can Dispute that on philosophical grounds, but just for the sake of the argument, take for granted that the intellect is an immaterial substance. And then imagine, an in- or conceive, I should say, an intellect conceiving itself. Right. So what I mean by that is that um, an intellect has the power of ratiocination, right? and it can hold concepts, uh, but it has to have a concept of something. And in this instance, you have the intellect forming a concept of itself. So the, the, the concept and the intellect, of course, are one thing. Uh, the subject is the intellect. The object is the intellect. And the act of intellection is the intellect. And so substantially, they're all one essence, even though there's a distinction of relation within them. That, that I think, is the best analogy for the Trinity, because that's what we actually teach about the Trinity, that there's this one essence, one substance. There are three relations that don't differ spatially or materially or temporally or any other way, except through the relation of paternity to filiation to spiration. Well, we do thank you, uh, Dan, so much for your email. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, you can do that any time of the day or night at uh, EWTN, uh, I'm sorry, at CTC uh, at EWTN.com, CTC at EWTN.com. We invite you to journey deeper into your understanding of the Eucharistic mystery and understand the Eucharistic story of God's love for us from the Old Testament to the institution of the Eucharist. How can you do that? Well, you can download the free ebook. 
the 12 stations of the Most Holy Eucharist. It's available for you absolutely free. Just go to EWTN.com slash Catholicism. EWTN.com slash Catholicism. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Lucas, a first-time caller in Jackson, Michigan, listening on the great Good Shepherd Radio. And a blessed Advent to you, Lucas. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, thank you, Mr. Price, Dr. Anders. You too. So I know every human has a special guardian angel assigned to them, and I was wondering, did Jesus Christ as man have one specifically assigned guardian angel as well? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I don't know that I've ever thought about this before, but it does occur to me, a, a, a passage of Scripture comes to mind when uh, Jesus said, I think it's in what Matthew 26, he says, don't you realize that I could ask my Father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen? Mm. Right? So Christ clearly uh, saw himself as, uh, as under the protection of the angels, and and we do read that angels ministered to him. So, for example, when he was in the uh, uh, fasting in the in the desert, angels yes. came and ministered to him. Mm-hmm. So he he definitely had ministering spirits that 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 served his uh, uh, spiritual needs. The human soul of Christ was accompanied by angels. Whether or not whether he got just one, or maybe you know because of his special status, maybe he had a whole legion. I don't yeah. know. But they definitely were angels that attended him. There you go, Lucas. Appreciate your call. That opens up a line for you right now at eight three three. 288-EWTN. We have two lines open as we speak, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this uh, Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Daniel in Ottawa, Canada, listening today on YouTube. Blessed Advent to you, Daniel. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, thank you. Um, Would it be possible in principle for a non-Catholic to be canonized by the Catholic Church, uh, for example, Billy Graham or some Eastern Orthodox person? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So um, it is not the practice of the Church to canonize non-Catholics, and, you know, for good reason, because one of the things that the process of canonization is meant to do is to take an individual and hold them up to the Catholic faithful as an example of Catholic life. Sure. So, um, you know, since if, if the Church were to go about canonizing non-Catholics, even though we admit that they can be in heaven, um, it might lead to the danger of indifferentism, that a person might think, well, it doesn't matter if I practice the Catholic faith or not, because, say, this other guy made it to heaven without being Catholic, maybe I don't have to be Catholic either, and that would be to draw the wrong conclusion from that act. So I think it's highly unlikely the Church would ever canonize uh, a non-Catholic. Um, I, I I understand the logic of the question. Is it theoretically possible, even if it would be imprudent? And the Church does teach that non-Catholics can, in fact, go to heaven. And and so I suppose, theoretically, one could uh, conduct an investigation of a person's life, consider whether they had heroic virtue, uh, consider whether or not prayers for their intercession were miraculously answered, and so forth. The same kind of criteria could be brought to bear. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's incredibly unlikely that the Church would ever actually do that. Um, and uh, Now, I will say that there are Eastern Orthodox saints um, that uh, that haven't been widely venerated in the West that modern popes have referred to as saints. Oh. Right. So the, 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 the Latin Church did not, the Catholic Church did not canonize them, but uh, there seems to be a kind of implicit recognition that their that their popular cult in Eastern Orthodoxy is legitimate. So I'll give you an example. St. Seraphim of Sarov, a uh, very well-known Russian Orthodox uh, saint of the 20th century, 
um, was uh, or 19th century. Anyway, modernity. Yeah. I can't remember what his dates were. Uh, John Paul II, if memory serves me correct, once referred to him as a saint. And I think that he's that's not the only example. There have been other examples of that. So it's different from canonization, but kind of a tacit recognition that, mm. yeah, these, these other communions have, have produced their holy people that are rightly venerated. Fascinating. Daniel, thanks so much uh, for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Here now, Cheryl in Yakima, Washington, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Cheryl, what's on your mind today? Well, I was listening to Dr. Anders and the light bulb theory. Uh Yeah. I used to teach uh, Sunday school. I taught first graders, and I also taught sixth graders. And to me, and I'm talking back in the the 80s, okay, before we have any of this electronic stuff, Uh you need to give kids a visual. And I use, it just kind of came to me. It was an apple. You have the seeds. You have the pulp, and you have the skin, and it's all one, and you can't have one without the other. And then the other one that I used was a pop can. You have the pop inside, you have the tab where you let it out, and you have the outside of the can. And somehow I'm just thinking a pizza was also in there, but but I'm not going there because I'd have to think about that. Mm. Anyway, well... I uh, I really appreciate the call, Cheryl. And of course, uh, you know, uh, Sunday school classes and CCD courses are awash in these kinds of visual analogies. Uh, Tom mentioned the three-leaf clover earlier has has been a, a tried and true favorite um, over the over the decades. Uh, all of these analogies are deeply problematic, however, and you put your finger on exactly why they're problematic. You said you have to give kids a visual. Well, I agree that if you want a concept to be perfectly intelligible. Uh, to say an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old, giving them a visual prop is a is a very helpful way to try to make the concept intelligible. The difficulty is if you give a visual prop for the for the Trinity, what you've made intelligible is the visual prop. Mm. You've actually obscured the doctrine of the Trinity. Oh, right. Because in this particular case, see, the skin of an apple is not of one substance with the core of the apple or with the pulp of the apple or the or, or the seeds of the apple. And they are separate from one another in space, right? So the, the distinctions between them are concrete and, and material and, and, and by extension. And, uh, and you couldn't say uh, that, say, the substance of the seed is of one essence with the substance of the pulp. I mean, th- there's, a, there's a unity there, but it's not the kind of unity that we predicate of the Blessed Trinity. Mm. And so I, I think it's... Personally, and, and this is the, the tradition is behind me on this, I think it's unwise to use visual analogies for the Trinity because it in, invariably distorts what we actually teach about the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery, and we can state it. It's very hard to conceptualize and even more difficult to picture. And, um, and every attempt to render the Trinity perfectly intelligible destroys the mystery, right? When somebody says, oh, I've got the perfect explanation— well, it's almost surely going to be wrong, right? <laughs> because if it's, if it's perfectly limpid and clear and, and intelligible, then it's not the Trinity, because the Trinity is not those things. It's extremely obscure. It's very obscure. And so there, there, I think there are other analogies, and I use the analogy that Augustine has given of the intellect thinking himself. There is another analogy that I like precisely because it's not an analogy of the Trinity. It is rather an analogy for our epistemic situation with respect to the Trinity. And here's the analogy. Uh, can an object, this is a, you 
throw this one out to your 10-year-olds. Can an object be a rectangle and a circle at the same time? And, of course, if you, you take that question at face value, you don't think about it very long, you say, absolutely not. There's no way that a rectangle and a circle can be the same thing. And you say, well, what about a cylinder? What about a cylinder? Isn't a cylinder a rectangle from one perspective and, uh, and a circle from another? Mm -hmm. And that only, becomes, that only becomes intelligible when you recognize three dimensions. Right? But if you stay in two dimensions, you can't ever reconcile them. So the Trinity is not a cylinder, right? nor is the Trinity something that can be pictured in two or three dimensions. But what that analogy does for me is it shows how it's possible to have a, 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 an assertion, to have a proposition that seems to imply a contradiction when once I admit some other dimensional perspective, the apparent contradiction vanishes. I think that that's where we are with respect to the Trinity. We're, we're proposed something that seems on the face of it to be a contradiction, but we don't yet have that other dimension, right? There's another dimension of perspective mm. that we lack that God himself has that renders it intelligible. So St. Thomas Aquinas would put it this way. He would say, is, is, uh, is God's essence intelligible? And Thomas said, yes, but not to us. Oh. It's intelligible to God. It is not intelligible to us. It will become intelligible to us when we experience the beatific vision. So when we teach the Trinity, we have to teach it in a way that maintains the mystery, which at some level means we have to maintain its apparent lack of intelligibility. Very good. Cheryl, what a great call. Thank you so much for checking in from Yakima this afternoon. Call to communion here on EWTN. A quick email here from Tina. Could you please explain the Catholic doctrine of the Assumption? Yes, the Catholic doctrine of the Assumption is that the Blessed Virgin Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven, uh, and uh, that she, her body did not suffer corruption. Uh, it is unstated in the Catholic doctrine whether or not she died physically before the Assumption, and so there are divergent traditions in the Church concerning that. In the Latin West, the, the predominant tradition is to depict her as ascending alive to mm -hmm, heaven. Mm -hmm. In the Catholic East, uh, it is to depict her having died and ascended and assu being assumed into heaven, so the so-called Dormition of the Blessed Virgin. And both, both traditions are permitted and allowable in the Catholic tradition. The important thing is that she got assumed. Yeah. Alive or dead, she got up there. That's the important thing. And we appreciate uh, you, Tina. Thank you for your email. One last one here before we go to break. Uh, this is from Robert. Does God will evil? No, God does not will evil. Can't do it? Nope, he doesn't will it. Okay. Can you elaborate since we have about 30 seconds? Oh, is that what we've got? Yes, okay, sure. Yes. Yeah. So God, <laughs> God will uh, permit evil because he intends to allow a greater good to come out of it. And uh, everybody, I think, has an experience of this in their own life. I mean, take the parent, for example, that allows the child to, to, uh, to take a misstep because they know that the child—well, at least they hope the child will learn from the experience uh -huh. and that, that some greater misstep down the road will be prevented. God can do the same thing. Okay, so perhaps, uh, perhaps the, the child approaches that hot stove— and yep, yep, yep. I've told that story before. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, kid approaches a hot stove. Uh, mom and and aunt say, "Don't don't touch the hot stove. Uh, you'll get burned." And kid doesn't listen and runs headlong to the hot stove. And they let him do it, not because they want him to get burned, but they a want him to learn how to obey his his mother and his aunt, 
and B, he learns not to touch hot stoves that way. That lesson sticks yep. every time. Appreciate that. Thank you so much uh, for your email. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Daniel in Colorado. Jim is in Portland, Oregon. Has a couple lines for you if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on this December Advent Thursday afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Please stay with us. It's called a communion on this uh, beautiful Thursday afternoon here at EWTN. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to two more members of the EWTN radio family, WSOG, that is in Spring Valley and Normal, Illinois, celebrating 21 years with EWTN. How about that? Also, KTDC, that's in Muscatine, Iowa, marking 20 years with us. Congratulations to both great radio apostolates from your friends here at EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now. Here is Daniel in Colorado listening on YouTube today. Daniel, blessed Advent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Blessed Advent to you, Tom. You look rather spiffy today, and happy Feast of St. John of the Cross. Thank you. Dr. Anders, I very much enjoy your book that you wrote. Uh, you did a great audio version of it as well. Uh, my question is, what is the difference between the Pauline privilege and the Petrine privilege? I'm going to hang up and listen to your answer. Okay. I'll have a great day and be awesome. Sh- sure, Thank sure. You. Appreciate the question. So the Pauline privilege allows the dissolution of the bond of marriage between two unbaptized people so that one of them can join the Catholic faith if the if the one that doesn't join is unwilling to stay in the marriage. Oh. And this comes from a passage in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where he he's, describes just that, are you, that he says, you shouldn't divorce your wife, you shouldn't divorce your husband, except if one of the spouses wishes to become a believer and the other spouse uh, is unwilling to live with the believer, then the bond of matrimony doesn't hold in that case. That's a Pauline privilege. Okay. Uh, the Petrine privilege is the right of the Holy See to dissolve that uh, a natural marriage between an already baptized person and an unbaptized person also in favor of the faith. So it's similar to the Pauline privilege, except it contemplates the possibility of a baptized and an unbaptized person in a valid natural marriage. And, uh, you know, so you might think of a situation where, say, um, uh, a baptized Protestant uh, marries a, a unbaptized person. The church would regard that as a valid natural marriage. Uh, the Protestant then wants to become Catholic. Uh, the unbaptized party is unwilling to live with them, and um, and then uh, and you know wants to get out of the thing. And then that baptized person would like to have the graces of a sacramental marriage and mm-hmm. marry in the church. Petrine privilege allows the dissolution of that natural bond. There you go. Thanks so much uh, for your call today. Glad that you're watching us on YouTube. Jim is in Portland, listening on the great Modern Day Radio KBVM. Hello, Jim. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Jim in Portland, are you there? Well, why don't we put him on hold then, if we could, uh, and we'll uh, we'll get back to him in a moment. We did receive a phone call from Arch, who says, uh, "Dr. Anders, you may remember Cheryl's question. She was talking about the apple and the Trinity. Uh, how do you suggest that people teach the Trinity to young children without using analogies or visuals?" Um, 
Yeah. So I don't think that with young kids, we need to necessarily need to go in for all of the heavy duty metaphysics, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it's enough with the small children that we talk about God our Father and His Son Jesus Christ and, and you know, the Son and the Father love one another and Jesus the Son loves the Father and that we can, uh, we can be Jesus's brothers and sisters and enter into the love of the Father with Him and 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 we it's it's important it's more important to teach the the actual worship of Christ uh, and the imitation of Christ and his filial relationship to the Father and to and to unpack uh, the metaphysical doctrines later on down the line, and I think we can take a page out of the ancient church's uh, catechetical manual, if you will, in the way they taught these things. So it's not uncommon now if you go through a catechism class to to sort of start with the 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 top of the metaphysical hierarchy begin with the existence of god and then work your way all the way down to the foundation of the church and the sacraments to take it in that logical order um and uh, and you can make a case for doing that however that's not the way they did in antiquity in antiquity if you wanted to become catholic what they would do is they would start with the moral life and in fact the mysteries of the faith were hidden from unbelievers they weren't they weren't fully taught they weren't revealed particularly the sacraments were withheld from them and so first you had to make a commitment to the Catholic way of life and get your moral house in order. Mm. Then when you, were, when you were baptized and confirmed at Easter, then you would have uh, the period of mystagogy in which the mysteries were unfolded to you, right? And so I think that's a, even though that was a pattern for adult catechumens in the church, I think uh-huh. something like that is applicable in the lives of children too. You know, okay. I know when I was growing up, uh, not in the Catholic church, in the Protestant church, um, I uh, I got a lot of catechesis about God and the importance of conversion, like uh, evangelical conversion, born again, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and I never could f- quite figure out how to fit the moral life into that picture, right? I mean, I recognize I knew there's some kind of connection, but it was very obscure to me, particularly as a Protestant who thought he was saved by faith alone. I couldn't ever quite get my head wrapped around what the motive for morality was. Mm. If I had to do over again, right? I would prefer that my parents and teachers had formed me in virtue. And uh, and more or less, you know, not not bothered so much with the heavy duty metaphysics, um, and then uh, I could get that catechesis later in life, maybe in, in my teenage years. Yeah. Uh, but after I had a sound foundation in virtue and humility and obedience and fortitude and temperance and all the rest of it. Arch, thank you so much for your call this afternoon. It's called a communion. This is a uh, last call for your call at eight three three. 288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-3986. Sharon listens to us on the great Iowa Catholic Radio, and she says, Our grandnephew, who was raised in a Protestant tradition, is now living with his girlfriend, who is Catholic. Her parents, seemingly practicing Catholics, helped them move in August. When they were making the decision, I urged them to marry, then do a big wedding later. I sent them information on cohabitation from a faith and secular angle. My thought is that at Christmas Mass, she'll likely receive Jesus, even though she is in mortal sin. I will not see them myself during the holidays. What is my responsibility in this situation? I do pray for them daily. Thanks again, Sharon in Iowa. Okay, the one thing I missed was, what is Sharon's relationship to these young people? Uh, well, she is, uh, uh, well, uh, it, it is his grand, Cheryl's grandnephew. 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 Yeah. Okay. So, so that's a hard, what is your responsibility is a hard question for me to answer. Mm. Because it really depends on, 
how what your proximity is to these young people, and I don't just mean geographically, I mean in, in relational terms, um, whether you are the person best suited to make such an admonition, whether they are likely to listen to you. I mean, all of these things come into play when you're trying to make a prudent choice about whether to admonish a sinner. When the Church yeah. says you should admonish sinners, they say you, you don't admonish every sinner every day of the week, right? You, you have to have some sort of criteria, and they're basically, is it grave matter? Are you the person best suited to make the admonition, and are they likely to listen? I think we can conclude you're correct, it's grave matter. That, that we, we can check off the box. Are you the one best suited to make it? I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe their parents are. Maybe their priest is. I don't know who's better suited. And then are they likely to listen? Well, um, unless you're super-duper close to the young lady, I think the odds that they're going to listen to you are, are next to zero, mm. right, in these situations. Now, maybe they will. Maybe you're very, very tight with them, right? Then maybe they'll listen. Maybe you are the person to make this admonition. But, but, uh, but I have my doubts. I have my doubts. And, um, you know, objectively, it is absolutely wrong for young people to cohabitate, absolutely wrong for them to cohabitate. Um, But uh, there are times when pastoral prudence requires that one apply the principle of gradualism to these kinds of situations. And, um, you know, I can, I I mean, I can can think of some situations where, um, you know, let's say you have a couple that has a child out of wedlock. And they have a very poor understanding of the nature of marriage and the kind of commitments that are necessary to live that marriage. Um, and, uh, and, and like they, they understand by the word marriage something so vastly different than what the church understands that to say you must marry is almost surely to be misunderstood. And yet the ter- determination of the couple to, to join together uh, uh, in cohabitation for the sake of the child's welfare might be regarded in their particular demographic or social circumstances as a radical act of self-sacrifice, given that almost all of their friends and relatives had either had abortions or were living as single parents, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, so you know, the Pope talks about this, and he, he, he says this is not a marriage, and we shouldn't dignify it with the title marriage, and we're not going to apply any kind of rites or ceremonies that would recognize it as a marriage. But there's something there that approaches an analogy to what the Church means by marriage, particularly with respect to, you know, what the alternatives they were contemplating are. And so I don't want to come into a situation like that and say, hey, you know, you've decided to be together for the sake of the kid. You didn't get an abortion. You're not doing the single parent thing. You're terrible people. <laughs> All right. All right. So like pastoral prudence says, there are times when you have to kind of move slow and gradual mm. and say, yeah, it's great that you want to take care of the child and you want to do this together. And, and that's admirable. And then you find the moment to introduce the question, so what about making a kind of permanent commitment to one another, guys? Mm, you know, yeah. that's what the Catholic Church means by marriage. And so, you know, the, the, there's, there's an absolute right or wrong about cohabitating. There's not an absolute right or wrong about what is the best time and place to make that admonition. That requires a great deal of pastoral prudence. There you go. Appreciate that. Thank you so much uh, for that question. Call to communion here on EWTN. Tonight on The World Over Live with Raymond Arroyo, Dr. Bill Donahue stops by. He's president of the Catholic League, and he joins to discuss true religious diversity and the latest cultural assaults on Christmas. And I got to tell you, 
They are legion. Also tonight, a special behind-the-scenes look at Raymond's hit CD, Christmas, Merry and Bright. Check it out the world over with Raymond Arroyo tonight on EWTN radio and television. That is at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And, of course, on radio and TV, we'll, uh, we'll encore that with several spins throughout the weekend. All right, back to the phones now for Call to Communion. Here is Bert in one of my favorite towns, Franklin, Tennessee, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Bert. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, hi. Very simple question. Um, look, I've been looking for a Catholic translation of the Didache, and I can't find one. Oh, yeah, sure. I think I can help you there. Um, so Liturgical Press uh, has, a, um, has a translation, analysis, and commentary of the Didache. Okay. And I would be shocked if that's the only one. I mean, just while we were sitting here on the phone waiting to get your call, I started sort of internet searching Catholic uh-huh. publishers. But I, honestly, probably the best place outside of liturgical press, I was I was thinking about academic presses. I don't know the answer to this, but like Notre Dame University Press or mm-hmm. Catholic University Press, something like that, uh, you might be able to find a, a kind of like a critical translation and commentary with textual sources revealed, that kind of thing. Um, that I would be shocked if uh, if uh, if there weren't a sort of first-rate Catholic academic publisher that didn't have that kind of uh, of that kind of critical text. Um, but in terms of a more popular publication, I'd say a liturgical press is a, is the one, only one I know about at the moment. There you go, Bert. Uh, thanks for your call from Franklin. I think this is Analogy Day. Bob in Birmingham, uh, regarding this uh, analogy of the Trinity, called in. He says, "Hey, Dr. Anders, how about this one? God the Father is ice." Jesus as living water, and the Holy Spirit as gas. They're all water. Modalism, 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 modalism. Heresy of modalism, heresy of Sabellianism. Yep, bad analogy. Won't bad work. Analogy. Won't work. Won't R- work. R- 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 nope. Sorry, Bob. Yeah, also, that, was, that was condemned way back in the second century. Well, there you go. Uh, Jim called and says, Dr. Anders, who governs hell? Someone said God rules it, but I thought hell was lack of God. Yeah, right. So the the, uh, the the idea of hell as a kind of society with a hierarchy of governance owes a lot more to Milton than it does to sacred scripture or sacred tradition, mm. right? Uh, and perhaps to Dante as well. So, I mean, this is an artistic depiction of hell. I don't think there's anything dogmatically that suggests that we should think of hell as being hierarchically ordered and having a kind of a, a kind of government. Um, doctrinally, what we mean by hell is uh, the alienation of the soul from God and the experience of the pain of loss and the pain of sense. And, and, and beyond that, I don't think there's much more that we can affirm uh, about the nature of hell. Now, since hell involves the, uh, the existence of substances, God is, uh, uh, is the ultimate ground of the existence of all existent things. God is the very act of being itself. And so God is not absent from hell by way of his immensity, right? Uh-huh. He's absent from hell by way of his, of his uh, paternal affection, mm. right? And so the soul in hell is utterly deprived of any kind of interior relationship to God, you know, of, of love or charity or enjoyment, uh, but he's not metaphysically absent from God in that God is ubiquitous, God's omnipresent, so that God is, is, is absent from nothing in that sense. Yeah. Jim, thanks so much uh, for your question today. Uh, Tom listens to us uh, in Tulsa on Oklahoma Catholic Radio. Here's what Tom says. The Middle East conflict goes back a very long time, seems to be in large part about whose territory the Holy Land really is. So my question is, 
why did God choose an already occupied piece of territory by Philistines, etc., to be the Holy Land of the Jews and didn't choose an unoccupied or less occupied area to possess that wouldn't be in constant turmoil? I'm not questioning God's motives. I'm just trying to better understand why he chose this particular parcel of territory out of all the other places on earth to be the promised land of the Jewish people. Any light you can shed would be appreciated. That's Tom in Tulsa. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So let me let me say, first of all, that from the Catholic point of view, the question, who owns the land, is a total non-starter, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with our relationship with God or eschatology or the nature of the Church or anything like that. So mm. there's, there's literally Zippo that hangs on the question of land ownership for, for purposes of Catholic identity. Um, and uh, the people who are fighting about that are different religions that have a different conception of God's concern about ge- about geography, right? Catholics don't particularly—they think God owns the whole world, and there is no, uh, you know, there's no special ground, so to speak. Uh, any place is a place where you can have a relationship with God, and the kingdom of God is not here or there, Jesus says in Luke 17, is within us. It's not, you know, located in some sort of territory. Um, in terms of why— uh, the people of Israel, or well, the children of Abraham in antiquity, you know, 4,000 years ago, got that particular parcel of land. Um, that is one of the great mysteries of, uh, of Revelation, right? Why did God pick this particular people in that particular place, people of no account? Um, and maybe that's the secret. Maybe that's the answer to the question. If uh-huh. you go back to the time of Abraham, surely the Babylonians would have been a better choice. Maybe the Assyrians would have been a better choice. Egypt was a powerful empire. Uh, you know why? Why did God uh, pick these uh, these uh, these country hicks? You know these backwood <laughs> nothings that had no culture, no no uh, you know no legal system, no architecture, no art, no philosophy to speak of to distinguish them from uh, the rest of the world. But He kind of picked the you know the backwood hayseed hicks of the world, maybe to shame the wise and the powerful and the strong and the mm. philosophically astute and so forth. And as far as uh, its its location at the at sort of crossroads of civilizations. Well, that might have been providential, right? Because that they were kind of at the heart of things, and so the message of the gospel ultimately was able to go out from the Holy Land to the entire world. That was easily facilitated by its location. Tom, thanks for listening to us in Tulsa. It is called a communion here on EWTN on this Thursday afternoon. Camille wrote to us, Hello, Dr. Anders. My daughter has a Protestant friend who thinks the Catholic Church is all man-made and not at all biblical. A recent comment he had made was that in our history there were popes that had killed or had ordered certain people to kill the innocent. Another issue he has is, where do we find the sacraments in the Bible? He believes we were born with all the grace we need and that it's a gift from God and that we receive no other graces through the sacraments. And again, that's from Camille. All right. Hey, I'm writing this down. Born with grace we need. Okay, so a number of different claims here. One is that the Catholic Church is man-made and not at all biblical. Well, um, as a Catholic, first of all, I would like to say the criteria, the criterion that a thing must be biblical in order to be Christian is an unbiblical criterion. So I don't, I don't even acknowledge the criterion. Right? Okay. Um, nothing in sacred scripture says that in order to believe a Christian doctrine, you have to be able to establish it from the Bible. Nothing in, Christian, nothing in the Bible says that. In fact, Jesus gives a very different criterion for determining Christian orthodoxy. When Christ made provision for handing on the faith, he did not say, go to the Bible to find out what to believe. What he said was, go into all nations, 
make disciples and teach everything I have commanded you. He gave the apostles, that is, living individuals, empowered by the Holy Spirit, a charge to teach with authority. And they, in turn, appointed successors who appointed successors after them, what we call apostolic succession down through the centuries, the church that Christ founded. He said he was going to found. He said to Peter, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the way we know the Christian faith is not primarily or uniquely from the Bible, but rather from the teaching of the teaching church established by Christ. So if some doctrine were not established in the Bible, it would mean absolutely P-Turkey for whether or not we believed it. The question is not, is it in the Bible? The question is, does the church teach it? Right? That's how you know what the Christian faith is. Sure. But that being said, it is not true that the Catholic Church is not in the Bible. It is in the Bible, even though that's kind of beside the point. And I already referenced the key text, which is Jesus' words to St. Peter, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's Christ's stated intent to establish a church that he, to which he gave authority. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. Whoever sins you, forgive or forgiven. Whoever sins you, retain or retained, etc., etc., etc. This is a visible society that a person could be admitted to or excluded from. Matthew 18, if somebody comes and they're in sin, they don't listen to you, take it to the church. They don't listen to the church, you kick them out. Uh, it, it's, we're not talking about an invisible society lodged in people's hearts. We're talking about a visible society that you can be expelled from. Right? Mm. This is a um, was it Bossuet said that the that the Catholic Church is as visible as the Kingdom of France. Right? That that's the nature of Catholicism. So it is in sacred scripture, and I cited a whole bunch of texts there to that effect. Uh, let's go on to the charge that popes have killed people. <laughs> okay, yeah, and your point is, right? Didn't, uh, didn't Old Testament prophets and kings kill people? They absolutely did, and not always legitimately. I mean, David, who was held up as uh, sort of the paradigm of, uh, of Israelite kingship, got in a whole mess of trouble for committing murder and adultery. Oh, yeah. It didn't invalidate his claim to kingship, that he had a divine office granted him by God and a promise that he would have a heir on the throne of Israel till time immemorial uh, was not vitiated by the fact that he was personally immoral on that one particular occasion. Um, uh, so St. Peter in the Gospels uh, was entrusted by Christ with a tremendous amount of authority, and yet he made some pretty big moral boo-boos. He, he, he goofed in a major way. He, he denied that he knew Christ. He later uh, grossly offended the Gentile portion of the church in an extremely imprudent way. I mean, he was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. didn't mean he didn't have legitimate authority. Um, so the Catholic faith has never claimed that all popes were holy. In fact, we had a 200-year period 14th and 15th century without a single canonized pope. Wow. And there were some serious scoundrels during that time, right? Yeah. We've had some holy popes. We've had some humdingers, too. It's irrelevant to the question of the office as such. So what do you happen? What happens if you have an immoral pope? Well, maybe that pope goes to hell. Could be. Maybe he goes to hell. Dante had popes in hell. He was a poet, yeah. just an imaginative thinker. But it shows you that in the Catholic imagination, there's no guarantee that popes per se go to heaven. They have an office to do. They have a job to do. They have an office to fulfill. They can do it badly. We recognize that, that they can do it badly, and we're bound to obey the Pope, but conscience first, as Cardinal Lumen famously said. And so if a Pope ever commands you to do something that is in violation of conscience, you say, thank you very much, Mr. Pope, but I will follow conscience and not you. That is the Catholic response. Martin Luther, who you know left the Catholic Church, said a lot of uncatholic things, but he once said, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. Uh, I can do no other, here I stand. That was perhaps the most Catholic thing that Luther ever said in all of his... Um, notorious and rather uncatholic career, mm, yeah. right? Um, and what was the other one? Uh, the sacraments are not yes, in the Bible. Yes. Um, well, I beg to differ. How about do this in memory of me? 
Um, go into all nations and baptize, making disciples. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Um, uh, how about, uh, you know, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit when we believed, and so the apostles lay on hands, and people spoke in tongues, and were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we call confirmation. Um, the sacrament of matrimony is clearly in sacred scripture. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about the great sacrament of matrimony. Yeah. Uh, and I know there's controversy about the interpretation of that passage, but if I had more time, I could detail the arguments for that. Um, ordination is clearly in the Bible. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, Tim- Timothy fan into flame the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands, Paul said. Titus, the reason I left you in Crete, so you could appoint men to this sacred office and they would be competent to teach and rule the church with authority. I mean, there's plenty of evidence for ordination in sacred scripture. Uh, St. James uh, says in uh, James chapter 5, uh, call for the elders of the church, the presbyteroi, and they will anoint you and lay hands on you and pray for you, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. I, I think I've covered them, right? I think you have. <laughs> I think I've got them in there, so yeah. yes, they're definitely in the Bible. Yep, um, yep. And as for the claim that we have all the grace we need from birth— um, well, then you make uh, you make mincemeat of Christ's promise that it is necessary for a man to be born again if he would enter the kingdom of heaven. John That's chapter right. three and Romans chapter six both say that we have to be baptized and reborn in Christ's likeness and image because the the first birth, the natural birth from our human mothers, did not give us everything that we need for life and godliness. Camille, we hope that's helpful for your daughter's friend and. Uh, Appreciate your taking the time to write it to us here at Call to Communion. We're going to go out with this quick question from Ed. Actually, it's more of a statement. When people attack the church about not letting women become priests, I always wish that someone would point out that the church also doesn't let men become nuns. The church does not let men become nuns. The church does not let men become mothers. Um, yep, so there's a lot of things that I can't do. Um, for that matter, there's a lot of men that the church doesn't permit to become priests either. Yeah, that's true. Right? I can't become a priest. No, you can't. No. And even in the discernment process, you know, some some guys are said, you know, this may not be the place for you. That's right. Absolutely. Appreciate that. Ed, thank you so much uh, for giving us a great way to end the show. And Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast. You can check out the podcast anytime. Charles will have that posted for you in just a couple of hours. The address is EWTN.com radio. Look for the words Podcast Central. Click on that. Scroll down to uh, Call to Communion. You are good to go. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Have a wonderful day and uh, keep it peaceful during Advent, huh? How about that? We'll see you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a wonderful day and God bless.